Welcome to episode 239 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Monday, 17th of February, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey, everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Colton Reed, and on today's show... I've got an interview with South African academic Jogu Morgan. We talk about modern-day bicycle activism, as well as how, in the 1930s, the apartheid system used traffic separation to roll out a form of motorist v. cyclist segregation. A loaded term, then and now. Jogu, I'm, I'm presuming that I'm talking to you um, well, I'm I'm in Newcastle in, in in England, but I'm presuming that you are in Johannesburg. Yeah, yes, that's correct. I mean, uh, on the campus of uh, Wits University at the moment. And when I've previously spoken to you in the flesh, when we've actually um, met at conferences, it's been at places like uh, Velo City, hasn't it? So tell me about your your trajectory through this. How did you get into uh, cycling academia to begin with? Ah, and that's a good question because I think it relates to the article we're going to talk about. I, I suppose, started on this trajectory initially being uh, having a history of trying to make cycling work in Johannesburg or trying to make Johannesburg slightly more cycling friendly than it is at the moment. Um, being very frustrated with that um, and having all sorts of questions about why the process was not uh, unfolding as one might want, you know, as a very passionate activist. Um, uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, where I ended up in working on a PhD and someone suggested to me that I may want to, in terms of the questions I was thinking about, locate them empirically in an area that I had some sort of interest and I thought, hmm, how about cycling? So that's kind of how I ended up here. And then what kind of years are we talking? So when, because I, when, when I met you and I've met you in Johannesburg as well, as well as uh, yeah. the Velo City Conferences, that must have been about three years ago I met you at, in South Africa? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Probably around 2017, 2016, thereabouts. I'm not sure exactly. But yeah, I mean, I, I started working on my PhD in 2014, um, and but had been involved in, you know, uh, in a small way in some cycling activism in Johannesburg from, let's say, 2011, 2012, so um, thereabouts. Yeah. So I was in South Africa to give a talk on, uh, I think at that time, it must have been Bike Boom. Um and, and that's where you, you very helpfully came in and, and helped out. Um, now, in South Africa, mm-hmm. um, cycling is, is, is contested all around the world, of course. But in South Africa, what differences do you have as an activist compared to, say, the activists that you talk about, um, as you talk to in other countries? So are there race elements to cycling? Is cycling... Uh, very much seen as um, a white man's thing to do. What 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 kind of um, uh, barriers do you do you face that other people in other countries don't face? Well, again, a good question. But general, I'm not sure I can answer it for the whole planet <laughs> in terms of what barriers are the context face that we don't. Uh, but uh, I, I think. Yeah, it's a multi, multiple sort of uh, different ways of answering that question. So in terms of the race question, I suppose one way to answer it is I think it's useful to, uh, you know, think about what form of cycling we're talking about. Um, so leisure, sort of sport cycling, 
uh, does have, you know, one might observe, you know, a predominantly white male sport. Um, but I think in more recently, it's become, you know, it's diversifying. So you're finding people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, getting involved, um, I guess, like globally, where it's become, you know, uh, a healthy form of sport. Uh, but obviously, socioeconomically, that we're talking about sort of middle class participation. Um, yeah, and then in terms of commuter cycling, which is where I focus my research on, uh, historically, you know, sort of in the colonial, uh, particularly in the apartheid era and more recently, um, it's been mainly a male working class um, cycling practice. Uh, uh, and so, the, you know, the perception is that one cycles or to work or wherever they might go because, you know, perhaps they cannot afford any other way of getting about, uh, you know, the urban area in which they're uh, they're located. And so the, the challenges are uh, multiple and emanating from that. Yeah, I guess one of the most significant one is just the historical legacy of the colonial apartheid city that I think there's been an attempt to reconfigure it, but obviously that will take time. And of course, you were talking about, you know, the very sprawled uh, cities where people live very far from where they work. Um, so in terms of traveling from A to B, uh, relying only on bicycles, it becomes, you know, it's a severe challenge for people. Uh, often there are instances when people are trying to mix modes of transport, you know, the bike-train combo or the bike-bus, uh, but not really pervasive. Um, yeah, so, but in general, that's where I would start in response to your question. So I know this is outside your period. So your your period of study is the 1930s. But before that, going back to, say, the 1890s, was the cycling very similar to um, uh, America and, and Britain, where cycling prior to the, you know, the bicycle boom of 1896 was very much mm-hmm. um, elitist, um, very white, um, and, and, and I'm presuming very few blacks would have then owned bicycles at that time. So what what happened to to bicycling in Africa after say 1900? Hmm. Again, very good question. Um, I did, in fact, for the you know, there's a book coming out uh, which tells the history of cycling in Johannesburg, and that book or oh, that's come out actually in print. But that book goes as far back as the late 19th century, which is the period you're talking about. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, what you see in Johannesburg, and one can, gen- you know, can extrapolate for other urban contexts in the country. Um, it is exactly as you put it. Initially, bicycles are expensive. And, you know, they're being imported from European contexts from North America. Um, and they've, you know, like elsewhere, as you say, in the late 19th century, this exciting new machine <laughs> on the streets Um yeah, so from uh, a class and racial perspective, then it is mainly the kind of colonial white population that is able to get around on, on bikes. Um, and, and to some extent, there are late 19th century, early 20th century, a few black workers who can get on a bike. Uh, perhaps they do so because they, they're in the employ of a small business or where they've been given the bicycle to, you know, to run errands. And in the same way, perhaps they're working for, you know, in a domestic space and they've been given one uh, to do so. And in fact, one of the early controversies that the book talks about is um, about 1904, 1905. There's this kind of anxiety about how, you know, people of color, uh, mainly black men, are riding bicycles in, in the streets of Johannesburg. Um and these anxieties are being extra- expressed by sort of the colonial elite. Um, some kind of feeling that the way in which they're riding maybe is a bit dangerous <laughs> for the Johannesburg population. And maybe, you know, going back to this question of affordability, perhaps they're riding on stolen bikes. Um, there's a bike theft problem that's unfolding. Um, and so there's a, you know, this pressure put on 
the municipality to try and regulate and do something about this problem of people of color on bicycles. Uh, anyway, it's a bit of a long story, but it's sort of an illustration of, um, as you put it, you know, there's this kind of moment, late 19th century, early 20th century, where already the use of bicycles is being racialized and getting enrolled in kind of the social politics of Johannesburg. So in the UK and in America, there was a bit of a crossover period where the, the middle class elite who were cycling in the 1890s, some of them, you know, not, not many of them, yeah. the, but some of them did carry on cycling. So you've got like the, the CTC types who would then, you know, they were motorists as well, but they carried on leisure cycling. In, in, in South Africa, was it more a case of the white elites just dropped cycling like a stone? And because it's very visual, obviously a black face, a white face, that cycling became very yeah. quickly something that, uh, that that's a black person's form of transport. And even the people mm-hmm. who were like, you know, very fond of cycling, the whites were very fond of cycling, absolutely dropped it because it was, well, I'm, I'm not black. I, I can't be seen on that tool of uh, a, a black transportation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't think the white population drops the bicycles immediately like a stone. Um, but I think, as you put it, but I think there's definitely, this is a, in, you know, over a number of years, this is what happens. Uh, you do find this controversy we're talking about that's un- unfolding in 1904, 1905. Um, there's some historical evidence still in the 1910s. Uh, sort of the social elite are still getting on their bikes to go, you know, to the leisure clubs, you know, to have some cigars and whiskey and so on. Um, but yeah, this is true. Uh, later on, uh, by the 1930s, uh, for sure, at which point, you know, Johannesburg uh, is in the greater region in which Johannesburg is situated, this is uh, gold boom. Uh, that happens. Um, so the mines are doing really well, and this allows, uh, particularly the white population, uh, the, the income rises dramatically. Um, and this is a key moment in which even the, let's say, the middle class, lower middle class, is able to afford a car. Uh, and at this point, I think this is where I might agree with you, that kind of switch uh, really happens in a significant way um, by the sort of World War II era, uh, it's very rare to see a white person on, on, on a bicycle. Um, it's mainly black males who were, were commuting. Uh, and of course, you know, Johannesburg has other modes of transport. There are trams available, uh, there are buses, um, and this, you know, so that these are the options uh, that, are, that, are, that are available in the city. But yeah, in, in general terms, um, I think you do see this transformation from a racial perspective. Um, and I do think it happens uh, perhaps much earlier in terms of the social elite moving away from uh, from bicycles. So we're now coming into the 1930s, um, and we can start to talk about the, the chapter of this book that 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 you've written, and I'll, I'll talk about the book in a second. But before we get onto that, I would just um, because I've I've got this top of mind, and, and I know we will be exploring this later on, but I'd just like to kind of mention it now to to get your 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 opinion. So. Um, vehicular cyclists, some of them, have used, um, and this is like American and, and British vehicular cyclists, have said that the the uh, the kind of the Dutch style cycle tracks, which they they so hate, are like bicycle bantu stands. In other words, they are you know uh, zones of shame. That's where you go. Uh, and and you're corralled off. So where the the, the where the bicycle tracks that we're going to be talking about here uh, from from your paper were they very much seen as almost rolling apartheid? You know that that these are you've got to be penned in. These are not tracks built for the safety of these black riders. These are tracks for get out of my way tracks. Yeah, um, <laughs> I find it difficult to, you know, agree with the vehicular cyclist position. Um, but I think this is what you're beginning to see, or that this is the historical evidence shows, you know, happens in, in Johannesburg and actually in, in, um, 
I know at least of one other small town about 40, 50 kilometers away from Johannesburg um, where the psycho, the work that the psycho track or the psycho lanes are doing is precisely as you put it. Uh, it's really to get um, the cyclists off the road, um, to clear the road uh, so that the, mo- the motor cars can move quickly uh, and efficiently. So this is an extension. So would you say it's an extension of apartheid? This is like a, just a, 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 a white line manifestation of apartheid. Yeah, this is sort of the story that the book or the chapter tries to tell. Um, I, you know, it's sort of to go back to your earlier question about how I find myself in this project. Uh, I, wanna, in the course of my PhD work, when I discovered that, you know, this particular road, Louis Bota Avenue, had a psycho track, I was amazed and blown away because I had not come across anything yet uh, to suggest that at least um, that there was this kind of footprint of cycling in Johannesburg uh, in this way. Um, so I, I really wanted to follow the story and understand why does this thing appear um, uh, on the streets of Johannesburg? And of course, it does not exist now. Uh, what happened to it? So I think the broad uh, purpose of that chapter is really to try and understand why this psycho track appears and eventually uh, why it disappears. Um, before we get on to the, the so, uh, sorry, uh, 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 before we get on to the the actual book and and delve into that uh, <clears throat> the Louis Bota uh, Avenue in, in greater depth, uh, I, yeah. I mentioned Bantu Stand there. Uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a loaded term. Clearly, um, could you just define? Uh, what a Bantu stand is. Ah, so a Bantu stand under apartheid South Africa was a special region, uh, often uh, far, uh, situated far away from, you know, the, the town centers that was allocated for uh, people of color to live in. Uh, so traditionally, so this would be spaces in which, uh, so under apartheid, there's this notion that, and that there could be this sort of idea of coexisting in the same space uh, in terms of the country, and but there would be the country would be allocated, especially um, in terms of different uh, racial groups. Um, so, um, in general, in the urban areas, there would be um, there would be uh, this the. You know, the centers of the cities would be like sort of the white city. And then around the periphery, uh, there would be sort of township areas, uh, which were allocated for the quote-unquote non-white population. So the Bantustans uh, fit into this. Um, they're usually located in, in the rural areas. Um, but then in the cities, you'd have what were called uh, townships uh, allocated for, you know, again, quote-unquote non-white people. So this is a form of segregation yes absolutely simply that's uh, spatial segregation by this kind of racial construct now in cycle advocacy terms people people do like to 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 to, to separate out uh, bicycles and uh, and and motorists and they often use the word segregation you know segregated cycle tracks in, from your point of view, where segregation is clearly a, a much more loaded term, is that a term you avoid? Mm-hmm. Is that a term that does have more meaning for you? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously working in, uh, when working on South African cycling history or talking about cycling in South Africa, I really do avoid <laughs> that term segregation uh, because, yeah, it has a particular meaning that's most people here don't want to engage with, uh, or, you know, it just brings up an uncomfortable past that I think the country is trying to move forward from. And does it have modern resonance? So you, you literally have got to avoid it, or would people think of this as, well, yeah, that's where we're segregating off cyclists and that's a bad thing? And I think... Uh, yeah, I think it's really more in terms of sort of evoking, you know, the danger of evoking this kind of very difficult past that the country has unfolded uh, or has, has gone through, excuse me. So in, I suppose, in policy discussions, I'm talking about myself, really, um, I might try and use other uh, terms. Um, so, but I think, 
Uh, you know, I, I don't want to generalize for, you know, for other people. I think the tendency is to talk about, you know, to avoid that term. So separated is fine, segregated is verboten. Yeah, I would agree there. I think uh, separated psychotracks uh, or, you know, uh, it's better than saying segregated right. uh, because, uh, again, it evokes that past, but it's also a past that continues very much in the present because I think, as I mentioned earlier on, even though there's been and continues to be attempts to, you know, re- reconfigure, for instance, the city form, it's still the case that uh, you still have this kind of spatial segregation or spatial separation. <laughs> Listen to me using that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, still in kind of racial terms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. So yeah. so now uh, we can get on to the actual book. Um, so this is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out. This is The, the Politics of Cycling Infrastructure. Uh, the subhead is spaces and, well, it's it's inequality, but with the in um, in, in brackets. And it's edited by uh, the academics uh, Peter Cox and Till Coughlin. And I was very happy when I got a notification of this book to see there was a chapter by you. Um, and in fact, you're the, the, the second paper, uh, in there. And I have read two papers in there. One is actually, uh, by Katya, uh, which has got a, um, discussion of cycling in Newcastle, where I live, which was, which was, uh, nice to be able to, wow. to read. But then, of course, there's your chapter and it's, it's Louis Boater, um, Avenue, where d- just describe that, that, the, the, the actual, um, physical characteristics is that like that's a long road what's what's what is that road actually like uh in history uh, as well as today ah right yeah so louis Boita avenue in history um was sort of one of the main major th- links between uh, johannesburg and uh, the then uh, capital of the area called it Transvaal, uh, Pretoria. Um, so it was the main sort of mobility corridor uh, between the two towns. Um, so this was before uh, you've been to Johannesburg, so you have a sense of what the town looks like. So this is before the highways are constructed, before many other uh, arterial routes come. Uh, so if you are traveling between the two uh, towns and other urban agglomerations in the area, then you would use it. Um, so initially, it's like elsewhere, tarred road, full of rocks and so on. Um, but if essentially what happens over time is uh, through the development of Johannesburg, um, there are urban, uh, suburban developments that emerge alongside uh, Louis Boto Avenue. So if you're you know, traveling again between Johannesburg and Pretoria, then increasingly over time, you begin to see along Louisbourg Avenue on either sides, these sort of suburban formations that emerge. Um, yeah, so for, for many, many decades, for many years, it remains sort of the major transportation corridor between the two towns. But also if you're, and this is sort of going back to your earlier conversation in terms of uh, this segregation, the segregation question, um, so if you're traveling from the city center northwards in general, uh, when colonialism and apartheid, uh, 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 you know, during that era, uh, this would have been a, you'd be moving through a white space, through a white city. Um, more recently, sort of jumping forward quickly in time, obviously, you know, there have been other roads that have come into place. Uh, and so it's not such an important mobility corridor from a north to south perspective. Um, but it's still uh, quite an interesting road currently. Uh, it's one of the, in the, in the post-apartheid era, it's one of the roads where uh, a bus rapid transit system has been, has been constructed upon. Uh, it's not yet finished, but in the middle of the road, very much like you'd see in Latin American cities. Um, there's this spatial allocation for a bus rapid transit system. Um, so, yeah, it still continues to have a degree of importance in the, the mobility corridor. Yeah, it's a mobility corridor. So looking at your paper, this particular cycle lane, it wasn't a cycle track with, with curb separation or anything. It was a cycle lane, basically paint. But it was opened on 21st of August, 1935. And in previous conversations with you, and you've, you very kindly sent me um, newspaper cuttings, this was very much inspired by the London um, 
cycle track that opened the, the, the year previously in, say, June 1934, which it, in its turn was uh, inspired by Dutch cycle tracks. But this particular um, uh, Johannesburg cycle track, cycle lane, uh, was inspired by the London example, yes? Yes, absolutely. Um, so this is, uh, you know, an, a period of time in which uh, they... Uh, the policymakers or uh, the town planners and others in the municipality of Johannesburg are very much in active conversation with uh, with the UK. So they're monitoring developments uh, elsewhere. Um, they're going on study trips, as we might talk about nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they're, they're very they're very connected to, let's say, the sort of British Empire. Um, sort of le- trying to learn from each other in terms of how you solve these kinds of questions. And I think that's partly where this example arises from. Yeah. But they didn't do a very good job, Jogu. They basically looked at what was done and then used paint instead of a curb. So already from the, from the start, it wasn't very good. Why, why do you think it wasn't very good? Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It wasn't very good. It was a simple... Uh, painted line on the road. Uh, in one of the pictures, I think we were, that you're talking about, uh, they've carefully written, I think, cycleway on it. Um, so it was not very wide. Um, I think it was about 40, 40 inches, inches wide. Um, and it's not clear that it actually traveled all along Louis Bota Avenue from the city center to, um, and I guess we'll get, we'll get to this, to one of the main residential areas where there's a lot of bicycle traffic emanating from. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, quickly, I think it's not, and I guess we'll explore this in the course of conversation, um, uh, but it, it seems to be initially a quick solution. There's a moment of uh, severe pressure and demand on this yeah. corridor uh, where, as we mentioned, in the 1930s, there's this gold boom and the white population is certainly very wealthy, can afford cars and so on. And so there's this hectic competition for road space. And I think at that point, uh, representatives from the city of Johannesburg, the municipality, um, then are looking for a quick solution to, to resolve this ongoing road conflict. So it's let's put something down on the road. Uh, we can uh, specially allocate a space for all the different road users. You can have a cycle, uh, the cyclists on one side, and then you know the cars obviously using the majority of the space. Um, so this is kind of the initial quick solution that appears with much fanfare in 1935. Have you found any contemporary sources from the users of this this particular uh, cycle lane that talked about how this was an, an immediate degradation of what they were previously riding on? Or is it all this just, it's just newspaper stuff? Have you got any diaries from people, any, any contemporary stuff? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, very good questions. I for that paper, I mainly relied on archives uh, to to study. So I have not yet spoken to you know contemporary people about it. Um, but I am in the process of uh, for a separate research project in a different town, uh, doing that where um, the as you put it, there. Uh, I've been interviewing very old people who remember cycling to work. Um, in a small town where they did put on some cycle tracks, um, and Gen- those genuine, feeling- genuine, like, sorry, yeah. genuine cycle tracks, as in with curbs. Yeah, yeah, genuine cycle tracks, uh, very different from what happens in Johannesburg, which is just a simple painted line. Uh, and in fact, one of the cycle tracks, because there are a few of these, uh, was designed such that when you're exiting your uh, Residential area in this instance again, it was one of these you know segregated uh, suburbs for the black population. As soon as you got onto the cycle track, and uh, there was a fence, um, uh, probably about bicycle high, um, that would then prevent you from exiting the cycle track. Um, so it was a gated cycle track. There's no way you could, uh, if you wanted to, ride on the road. Wow! This was one instance. That's, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's I'm saying. Wow. And the but I mean, potentially, you could say, yeah. wow, two ways there. Wow, oh, that sounds so safe. That's fantastic. But also, wow, that is yeah. absolutely, uh, I'm going to use the loaded term here, that's absolutely segregation. It was a fence. 
<laughs> yes, it was a fence. And so, yeah, as you, yeah, I mean, I suppose from a safety perspective, I mean, there's no way that a motor car could then, unless they wanted to damage, you know, the driver wanted to damage their car, could then drive onto that cycle track. So it is safe from that perspective. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's really restricting the mobility options of, uh, of, of people who are then, in the cycle track, which is fenced off. So how, um, how long? So how long did? In, sorry, sorry. How long did that particular fenced off um, cycle track last? Uh, and how long did the the one on Louis Bota uh, Avenue last? Yeah. So the research on the fenced off one is still ongoing. So I'll be able to answer you. Mm. You know, for, hopefully by the end of the year. Uh, but the Louis Bota one lasts really through the 60s um, and by the 1970s it sort of becomes this uh, some people will remember it uh, you know once a long time ago there used to be a cycle track on Louis Bota Avenue um, but at this point it is really kind of faded away uh, the municipality is not no longer you know going taking going, you know every few years having to repaint it yeah so they literally were so for a for, for a few were, years. They were repainting it. Yeah. Um, so the records that I've found, which are you know the chief track traffic officer of Johannesburg in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, complaining that you know every so often he has to repaint this cycle lane, um, and he has to do so because you know the paint wears off, and one of the major reasons that the paint is wearing off uh, is because. Uh, motorists are treating it as an additional lane. Um, so even though there's this kind of idea that's, um, there's this idea that the cyclist should, you know, should use it and the motorist should stay on their section. Um, you, you know, there's this evidence that motorists, you know, drive on it and it wears away very quickly. And I'm just reading your paper here. And, and, and at one point it says that the 40 inch cycle track at the curbside will contain the two wheeled horde and that's again it's that's kind of a loaded uh, term but it's also very similar to terms that the white working class were getting in the UK at this time so the elites in their cars were very much pushing cyclists to that 40 inch they wanted them to 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 stay away from their fast motor cars Yes, absolutely. And I, I wish I would have been able to find much more like historical footage just to see what the everyday practices on the road would have been. So one has to rely on pictures and a sense of the imagination. Um, but I guess, you know, something else that I think is also going on is I, I do believe that, um, you know, so there's this kind of newspaper narratives that you discover of white motorists complaining, as you say, about this two-wheel horde uh, that does not always stick to the cycle lane that has been allocated to them, you know, partly because it's not wide enough, partly because there there may be a car or two parked in front of them. But I I really think, and I'm convinced of this, uh, that another another dynamic that's unfolding here is uh, there's kind of a micro-protest that is unfolding. Uh, so this idea that two, three, four cyclists are riding abreast uh, and preventing motorists from overtaking them, uh, I, I do think that there was a sense of, okay, I suppose like nowadays we may speak of the notion of reclaiming the lane, you know, the critical mass movement as, you know, put forward that idea. I really do think that in that kind of moment, uh, there's also a micro-protest unfolding on Lugbota Avenue. And and how many how many black motorists were there in the nineteen thirties? Very 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 few, um, and this doesn't really change much until the post-apartheid moment. Uh, I, there's a number that I came across, and you know, so the record keeping and the archiving is very good. Um, so uh, during sort of the colonial apartheid era, you know, everything was seen through this kind of racial construct. So even the record keeping of who, for instance, who owns motor cars would be, uh, would be kept according to race. And so you can, you can look at these kind of records and, and they tell you, uh, how many people own bicycles, uh, and how many people own motor cars and also through gender and, and sorry, through race terms. Um, 
And I think in the 1960s, um, just take this as an indicator. So it's not a complete exact number because I have to pull it up. Um, there, I think the, across South Africa, across the Union of South Africa, um, I think uh, there would have been one, two percent of the cars that were on the streets were owned by people of color. But again, I can look it up to you. So the 1930s, very small fraction of the black population can own motor cars. Mm. So that that protest you're talking about is kind of a way of of, of asserting some sort of uh, right to the to the land, in effect, uh, by riding along. Because it's clearly seen in racial terms. If, if, if most ninety nine percent, by the sound of it, or ninety eight percent of motorists are clearly going to be white, and the the same kind of uh, percentage the other way around, the cyclists are going to be black. Yes, absolutely. And uh, again, in the historical record, uh, I guess at this time people are not very shy to use very nasty language uh, to refer to each other. Um, so you'll find in the white press, you know, white motorists complaining and using, you know, very ugly language to refer to the black cyclists um, who are traveling on, on Louis Bota Avenue. So there's definitely a very kind of racialized term. Uh, transportation becomes very racialized uh, from very early on. Uh, and so uh, I think this kind of, I think the chapter in really is an illustration of kind of broader dynamics that unfold in Johannesburg where the road space really becomes to be seen as a white space. Uh, we've spoken about this kind of notion of a spatial segregation, but also within cities, the road, uh, purely because uh, it's mainly the uh, white population that can afford cars, uh, roads really be- begin to be understood in these terms. So there's kind of this broader social struggle that is unfolding in, in, in South Africa also unfolds in micro terms on, on, the, on the roads. And I, I'm going to make a, a, a bold guess here that white motorists in their fast, muscular cars were pretty aggressive to black riders using their motor vehicles. <laughs> oh boy, yes. Uh, and of course, this is not... Again, we're speaking in general terms. Uh, this is uh, we're not attributing this kind of conduct to every single uh, white motorist or white person who happens to be driving. But yeah, in very general terms, this is what happens. And, and in fact, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, 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 scholar, um, his name is skipping my head at the moment. Kotsia. Uh, 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 He's won a Nobel Prize for his literature uh, on various South African dynamics. He's written about how, in his experience, being in South Africa in the 19... So he's white South African, uh, emigrated. But growing up and living in South Africa, he, he's written very famously or infamously that uh, in the 1950s, it was almost a bit of a sport uh, for white people to threaten uh, to run off you know, black cyclists off the road. Uh, so this is not just Johannesburg, it's really across the whole of, uh, across the country. Uh, in this other small town that we've been speaking about that I'm continuing to do this research, in fact, there's one very nasty incident uh, that happens in the, in the 1950s that's reported on <laughs> in the newspapers where uh, two or three cyclists are killed uh, by young white motorists. And so the story goes, uh, this white motorists are, you know, they're sort of traveling somewhere and they happen upon this, you know, black workers on bicycles and they, the newspaper reports that they stop and they throw rocks at them uh, and other, uh, and, and I think they do hit them and eventually uh, two or three of them, two out of three die. Um, so an ambulance comes and you know takes this black cyclist to hospital, but they don't they don't survive. Um, so I mean the story is written about, uh, and the mayor of the small town at the time uh, gets involved in this discussion because of this kind of controversy that's unfolding in Springs. Uh, but he refers to this you know young white boys um, 
uh, he refers to them as heroes um, uh, for doing this. Uh, so it, it's bizarre to me, but I guess, you know, that's kind of the context of the time. Mm. So as you say, um, there's kind of aggression um, that between different racial groups is also unfolding um, uh, on, on the on the streets, uh, on the roads. And so white motorists, yes, are being definitely being very aggressive. And then fast forward to post-apartheid era, where there are now uh, many black motorists. Is the same thing happening? A, a black motorist um, happy to to do what uh, those white motorists were doing to Hello. them? Are they happy to 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 bully people off off the roads? Because now the black motorists are the ones with the powerful vehicles. Ah, I lost you again for a few moments. All right. Connection is excellent, but other than that, uh, just say again. So, fast forward to post-apartheid South Africa. Fast forward to post-apartheid South Africa, where now black motorists are on the roads in great numbers. Are they then becoming the road bullies uh, of a previous era? So, maybe it wasn't the the, the apartheid concept that was making white motorists uh, so aggressive. It was the car. So, black people are now getting aggressive. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, you've been to Johannesburg, you've been to South Africa. So there's definitely a sense in which uh, this kind of road culture that has been produced and manufactured in this kind of colonial apartheid era uh, persists. Uh, probably persists because this is what, you know, motorists or future motorists have grown observing. Uh, if you get into a car, uh, then it means the road spaces your space <laughs> so the way in which you conduct yourself you should conduct yourself in a way that shows that you own or you belong in the space uh, in this space uh, so there's definitely that sort of historical continuity in this uh, aggressive practice uh, practices that continue which still continues to be a source of shock for me um, uh, to this day i mean the road regulations you know when uh, through the national government are very clear in terms of what the road conduct the expected road conduct so what is the appropriate conduct when it comes to if pedestrians have right away they have a green light uh, the road rules say that you know obviously the motorist should stop and wait for the pedestrian to cross but it's often the case that this will not happen uh, instead the motorist will be wanting to drive even though they're supposed to not be so yeah um, as you put it I mean I think there's this kind of continuing uh, historical practices um, where the road has become this kind of space where people really want to express and display their sense of dignity, I believe, um, in addition to this kind of observed practices. Yeah. So in, in, the, in, in America and in the UK, the, the, the car was, was portrayed as this liberating thing that you know the a, a, a freedom vehicle but in a south african context it, it does sound as though it, it was that but much much more because you, you would suddenly no longer be an underclass if you were behind the wheel of a car yeah no absolutely um and in fact you're stealing the words out of a forthcoming book chapter and that talks more explicitly about this. Um, I, I, yeah, I think in the post-apartheid moment, definitely where you've sort of had this long history where um, it's very clear that kind of uh, individual dignity is often connected uh, through owning a car. Uh, I think in the post-apartheid moment, I think those kinds of feelings are uh, really exaggerated or much more pronounced in the population. Um, so the idea that you can, you know, own and drive a fast machine, uh, preferably a very expensive one, um, I think has much more power uh, in in this context perhaps than elsewhere. I'm also thinking here of, so I've written in Stellenbosch and I've been shown the, the have you have you written in Stellenbosch? On the on the separate, I, I haven't. I've visited, and walked around, but okay. No. So there's the, the on some of the major roads. There is now some. Uh, there's what well, there's one particular um, Dutch style roundabout uh, that is 
uh, in fact, it's a- incredibly good. It's it's totally separated. It, it's absolutely modelled on Dutch roundabout, so protection on every arm. And yet, when you ride on this infrastructure, which Stellenbosch is clearly a, a, a kind of a white middle class, I, I might be um, paraphrasing a little bit too much or, or, or ex- extrapolating too much, but a kind of a white middle class area. When you ride on this infrastructure as a white middle-class cyclist in the Netherlands you would expect the motorists to stop for you because all of the signs are telling mm. them we've got to stop but here on this particular infrastructure you're taking your life into your own hands expecting the motorists to stop because no if you're behind the wheel of a car it doesn't matter if there's a cyclist on a protected roundabout you're going to carry on going through at speed and that's a white motorist or a black motorist so there is that culture of of road mm. bullying there that's incredibly strong, and no amount of it seems infrastructure <laughs> might actually combat that. Mm. 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 Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the the road culture is very very aggressive. I mean, just to tell you a small anecdote, I was in Chicago visiting family. And my sister stopped to let a pedestrian go through because they had a green light. They were, you know, she was going to turn. And I was joking to her, what are you doing, for God's sakes? Um, you should just drive through and, you know, it's your right. Because <laughs> uh, that's what people do in Johannesburg. So um, I, you're right. I think it will take s- something else to really transform uh, this culture. Uh, infrastructure may help. Uh, maybe it will need to be <laughs> maybe of the sort that we spoke about um, early on in the small town, you know, that really governs or that maybe really infrastructure could play a role here uh, uh, potentially if maybe if it separates uh, people in space and time or different road users. Um, but as, but I think something else needs to happen to, you know, to reconfigure and to transform this kind of everyday practices. So where where are we right now uh, in in South Africa in terms of bicycle friendliness and and th- maybe the government actually getting behind this? Where 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 do you see it now? Where do you see it in say ten years time? Yeah, I think currently, perhaps I should just speak specifically about Johannesburg because I have a better sense. I mean, I think the national picture is a bit uneven. Um, there are some towns and cities that are trying what, trying to do something about uh, promoting, you know, other forms of mobility, whether it's trains, buses, walking, cycling, and so on. Um, but it, specifically in terms of Johannesburg. I think the policy agenda is, uh, it's not where it used to be <laughs> when you compare it uh, a few years ago. I think they kind of, I suppose, this sustained interest, uh, not, not, not only for cycling, but other forms of mobility to reconfigure that has, uh, has gone away uh, slightly. But I guess from a global perspective, I mean, this is common because um, I haven't mentioned this, but there was a, let's say, four or five year period in which the city of Johannesburg uh, under a different mayor uh, was really pushing the cycling agenda and putting in lots of infrastructure and policies and regulations in place. And there was this uh, moment of uh, momentum, uh, which was at the time that I was, I suppose you could say when I was being an activist and that this kind of energy seems to have gone away. The mayor who was a very strong cycling proponent, he's no longer mayor. Um, and there was a new administration that's come in place and there's a different mayor that's come. Um, so in terms of the policy uh, momentum, uh, I think things are very quiet. Um, but I do think that if any, I suppose if experiences elsewhere are any indication, I think this is a moment, this is a, a blip uh, and I think this agenda will, will return uh, and I think it will return because uh, the sort of questions of mobility that the previous administration and non-state actors were trying to grapple with continue to be present. Uh, so issues of uh, traffic congestion, issues of 
people not being very healthy because uh, uh, of the, the, how they move, uh, the questions of air pollution. Uh, those are not problems that have gone away. Uh, so in one way or another, um, I think they will a new entity or new sort of actors will have to come and grapple with them. Jogu, uh, thank you very much. I think we'll we'll end it there. We kind of, we started in modern cycle advocacy and we kind of ended in modern cycle advocacy in South Africa. So, th- so thank you very much for your time. Thanks to Jogu Morgan there. The book we were talking about and which contains his paper and a whole bunch of others is The Politics of Cycling infrastructure published january 2020 and edited by peter cox and till coglan and available for 60 pounds from bristol university's policy press there's a link to that book and to jogu's other work on the show notes which can be found as always at the hyphen spokesmen.com Thanks for tuning in to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Other podcast captures are also available. The next show, supported by Jensen USA, will be out at the very beginning of March. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.